Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of mass panic. What allows fear to spread so quickly amongst groups of people? Military medicine researcher Ross Pastel defined mass panic as an acute fear reaction marked by the loss of self-control, which is followed by non-social and non-rational flight. Mass panics can take several different forms, including psychogenic illness or moral panic. Mass psychogenic illness involves a large group of people experiencing similar signs and symptoms of illness, like dizziness, nausea, and headaches, without an identifiable medical reason. Many mass psychogenic illnesses occur in schools and factories, where large groups of like-minded people congregate. They often begin because of a suggestion of a threat, like someone saying they smell gas. For example, in 1995, a Tokyo subway station was attacked by terrorists wielding toxic gas. Several commuters flooded hospitals, complaining of dizziness and nausea. But of the 5,081 who sought help, doctors found that 80% hadn't actually been exposed to anything. But the suggestion was enough to induce symptoms. Moral panics are widespread fears brought on by a perceived threat to society, such as a serial killer on the loose or a terrorist threat. Some of the most well-known mass panics have been moral panics, such as the Red Scare of the McCarthy era, where Americans grew concerned about a potential rise in communism, or the Satanic Panic in the 1980s. In today's Crime Bites, we'll hear clips from three different cases of mass panic and determine what led to such fears in large groups of people. We'll start with a clip from Parcast original Female Criminals, covering the Salem witch trials. This panic began in 1692 Colonial Massachusetts, after two young girls started suffering from fits. They threw objects around the room, made strange sounds, and started speaking in tongues. They believed they'd been cursed by witches and accused three townspeople of casting spells on them. With that, the witch hunt was on. The moral panic spread throughout Salem Village, and over the course of the next year, many more townspeople were accused, brought to trial, and punished. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of Salem was that only by lying could anyone hope for mercy. Those like Tichuba, who made false confessions and apologized, were rewarded with leniency. And yet, no true Puritan could bring herself to lie about something as serious as witchcraft. Most of the accused witches would rather die than admit to serving the devil. The trials continued through the summer of 1692, but the pace of new accusations slowed to a trickle by fall. On September 22nd, eight people were hanged in what would be the final executions of the Salem witch trials. Like all epidemics eventually do, 
the bewitchment outbreak ran its course. By now, Salem Village had finished eating 1691's ergot-infested rye crop. On October 2, 1692, Increase Mather, a powerful Puritan minister, wrote a letter to the court against the witch trials. He insisted that, It is better that ten suspected witches escape than that one innocent person be hanged. Ten days later, on October 12th, Governor Phipps ordered Salem Village to stop executing witches and suspended new witchcraft arrests. The governor was influenced both by Reverend Mather's impassioned letter and by an unfounded accusation against his own wife. A few weeks after that, on October 29th, Phipps dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer entirely. By the end of the trials, more than 200 people had been accused, and over 140 were arrested and held in jail. In all, at least 21 people died, 19 who were executed, plus Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good's newborn daughter, Mercy. Two dogs were also shot on suspicion of witchcraft. In that clip from Female Criminals, the mass panic of the Salem witch trials only ended after hundreds had been accused of witchcraft and 21 had been executed for their crimes. The reasons for both the strange symptoms the girls were experiencing, as well as the reasons for witchcraft accusations, still perplex historians to this day. In his book, Entertaining Satan, Witchcraft and the Culture of Early New England, Salem descendant John Putnam theorizes that the witch trials began as a simple act of teenage rebellion and attention-seeking that escalated to witchcraft by fervently religious Puritan adults. Other theories suggest a medical cause for the girl's fits, a parasitic grain fungus called ergot, which is now known to cause hallucinations and erratic behavior. Whatever the source, once the town caught wind of the accusations, everyone was overwhelmed with fear. Like the events in Salem, our next mass panic caused an entire town to take action against a threat. Coming up, we discuss the mass panic around the Servant Girl Annihilator. Hi, listeners. Have you heard Parcast's newest original series yet? It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my good friend, host Alastair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. So far, we've talked about a moral panic that galvanized the town of Salem to root out the witches in their mix. 
Our next clip is from Serial Killers and covers one of the United States' oldest unsolved serial killer cases, the Servant Girl Annihilator. The killer terrorized the city of Austin, Texas between 1884 and 1885, killing eight people. The city was gripped in fear, believing any of their households could fall victim next. Desperate to bring the killer to justice, Austin detectives arrested over 400 suspects over the course of the investigation. They even involved London detectives who believed the Servant Girl Annihilator and Jack the Ripper may have been the same person. But ultimately, the murders could not be solved. Mac had been arrested and cleared a month earlier after the Ramey murder. This time, he was arrested because Hennessy claimed he was involved with Townsend's gang. Another investigation was launched, but once again, Mac was found innocent and released. This latest string of dead ends brought the public's frustration with Austin law enforcement to an all-time high. People began taking their safety into their own hands. The statesman reported that in the days to follow, Austin became the best armed city in America, stating, the gunsmiths did a wholesale business yesterday, and it is probable that each home in town contains at least 14 rounds of ammunition. Austin households started arming their servants and teaching them how to fight back. Citizens organized nightly street patrols to protect against the deranged killer. For a while, it seemed the nighttime patrols worked. For nearly three months, there were no killings. But just as the town relaxed and prepared to celebrate the holidays, their sense of security was once again shattered. Around midnight on Christmas Eve, 1885, a local saloon's watchman rode up to Austin police officers on horseback. In a panic, he stuttered, a woman has been chopped to pieces. The officers knew exactly what it meant before they even reached the scene. The servant girl annihilator was back. In that clip from Serial Killers, residents of Austin, Texas, began arming themselves and their servants for fear of the servant girl annihilator striking again. At first, the annihilator only targeted black servants. But on that Christmas Eve, the killer escalated his crimes. He struck twice in one night killing two white women and injuring one of their husbands. One of the women, Susan Hancock, was described by a reporter as the most refined woman in Austin. The panic in Austin only increased. If two prominent white women were killed, no one in town was safe. The amount of officers on duty tripled, and a curfew was put into place. Following the Christmas Eve double murder, the attack stopped. Whether or not the Annihilator was scared off or simply moved on to a new hunting ground, we'll never know. Like the Servant Girl Annihilator's double homicide, our final clip was also a Christmas Eve panic. On the dark side of holidays, we covered what's known as the deadly non-emergency. On Christmas Eve 1913, hundreds of families gathered in the Italian Hall in Red Jacket, Michigan for a Christmas festival. It was an opportunity for the working-class people in town to take a breather and celebrate. The last few months had been stressful. Much of the population of Red Jacket were miners who were in the midst of a grueling strike. Instead of reprieve, what the families encountered that day was one of the deadliest incidents of mass panic in history. At around 4.45 p.m., 
a man climbed the stairs to the Italian hall. Unlike most of the people who passed through the doors, he was not a member of the union or even a relative of one. In fact, he was there with less festive intentions. He burst into the main hall and yelled a single word repeatedly. Fire. Panic spread. The call of fire was echoed by others, first in English, then spreading to a half dozen other languages. A few attempted to stem the tide of panic, but it was futile. Within seconds, screaming children and their families were stampeding toward the doorway. In the confusion, no one bothered to take the fire escape on the left-hand side of the building. Everyone went for the stairwell. The first few made it out safely. The rest were not so lucky. Someone tripped in the stairwell, and a horrifying domino effect occurred. Men, women, and children slipped and fell into the crush of bodies. Some sources say the pileup was six feet deep. Outside, families tried to rescue their children from the entrance, only to be pushed back by deputies attempting to contain the chaos. In the commotion, someone rang the fire alarm. The fire department's logbook entry for Christmas Eve read, Fire alarm, December 24th, 1913. Box 45 for Italian Hall. Disaster. No fire. Christmas festival for children of the WF of Minors. Fire call and a stampede following down stairway. 73 lives were crushed out. The doorway had become the grave for 73 people, 14 adults and 59 children, all of whom had been expecting a pleasant reprieve from the horrors of the strike. In that clip from The Dark Side Of, 73 people died as a result of a false fire report. After the tragedy, rumors circulated about who was responsible for so many deaths. Eyewitnesses reported the mysterious man who yelled fire was wearing a Citizens Alliance pin. The Citizens Alliance was an anti-strike organization of concerned citizens. Their pledge stated, I believe that the presence of the Western Federation of Miners is a menace to the future welfare and prosperity of the district, and that therefore in the interest of law, order, and peace, the Western Federation of Miners must go. Some historians believe a strikebreaker named Edward Manley, whose body was found in the doorway, had been the man who yelled fire. But ultimately, no one was ever formally charged for causing the mass panic. While there are many different causes of mass panic, we see that it manifests in several different ways. In female criminals, the Salem witch trials were either the result of a teenage prank escalated by a religious father or a pervasive fungus. In serial killers, an entire city shut themselves in their homes and armed themselves for a fear of being the servant girl annihilator's next victim. And in the dark side of, a false call of fire caused a stampede. In all cases, lives were lost and fear ruled over reason. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on mass panics. We'll be back next week with a new episode on prison escapes. 
If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Female Criminals, Serial Killers, or The Dark Side Of on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. I'll see you next time. Hi, listeners. Don't forget to check out the gripping new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.